This morning we get to look at a fantastic story in Acts chapter 9, which is the conversion of Saul. Many people would say, apart from the story and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no more significant act in the history of the church than the conversion of the apostle Paul. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says this, We call this event in Acts 9 a conversion, but it was more like a volcanic eruption. Thunderstorm and tidal wave all coming together at once. If If the death and resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which the great door of history swung open at last, then the conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of God gathered themselves up, rolled themselves into a ball, and came hurtling through that open door and out into the wide world beyond. Stand with me, if you will, for this reading of God's text in the Scriptures this morning from Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Excuse me? Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of Uh, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. He grew up in a Christian home in England, 
in the 18th century under the influence of his mother. But when he was seven, his mother died. And at that point, presumably, so did his inclination to follow Christ and understanding of the gospel. As years went on as a teenager, this boy joined the British Navy and started to live the rough life of a seaman. And while he was at sea, he got mixed up with the wrong people. At one point, he departed from the British Navy. They tracked him down. They brought him back, arrested him, flogged him, and then ultimately, at his request, released him. He was released to be connected with a slave-trading captain on the open seas, and then from that point forward, began to live a life that was unspeakable with regard to its lack of morals, with with regard to his lack of ethics, with regard to him having any understanding or embrace of the Christian faith that he was brought up in as a child, as he was on the open seas, on a boat, with sailors, involved deeply in African slave trade. At one point on the seas, as the seas are prone to do, they got tumultuous and his boat entered into what was looking to be a catastrophic storm. And at this moment, this boy, now a man, started to read the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis and started to recall words from Scripture like the Proverbs, yet had concluded to himself, I'm too far gone. My sins are too great. I'm going to die and I'm going to spend eternity in hell without God forever. But God spared this boy, now a man, from that tumultuous storm. And God spared this boy, now a man, ultimately in his soul, where just a few years later, he would go on to write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton. John Newton's conversion, really just like any conversion, is a story of amazing grace. John Newton's conversion was an unlikely conversion. The Apostle Paul's conversion was an unlikely conversion. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, regardless of what your story is, listen, your story of conversion is unlikely. And if for some reason, because of your background, you tend to think, no, my story of conversion makes perfect sense, then I would simply offer to you the idea that you don't understand your sin and you don't fully understand the gospel. Because any story of conversion is a story of amazing grace. And from Acts chapter 9 this morning, as we look at Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, I want us to see in an overarching way that God's amazing grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. God's unmerited favor in Christ, in the life of a believer, changes absolutely everything. Larry Crabb, the Christian psychologist and author, writes, only two things have ever changed the human soul, the fall 
and grace. The power of Satan and the power of God. And God is infinitely more powerful. Nothing is stronger than grace. The enemy doesn't have any. And God is defined by it. God is defined by grace. And grace changes everything. One time a group of Christian thinkers and theologians were sitting around trying to identify the most distinctive thing about Christianity, and they were perplexed, and they were arguing. And then one thinker, who I would say was better and wiser than the group that had been assembled, jumps in, and they ask him, hey, what's the most distinctive thing about Christianity? And he quickly says, oh, that's easy, grace. It truly is the most distinctive and most important thing about the story of Christianity that God gives us His favor, though we don't deserve it. That God makes us worthy, though we are unworthy. That God proclaims us righteous by justification, though in reality we are anything but. This concept, this reality has changed the world. It changed Saul's life, and it has the power to change our life. Either ultimately today, if you're in a place of unbelief, or continually today, even if you're a Christian, because you see, here's the reality about grace. We never outgrow it. The gospel is our permanent street address. We are saved by grace, and we live by grace. Grace converts us, and grace grows us, because grace changes everything. I want us to look in a little more detail from Acts 9 this morning how grace changes everything by looking at our need for grace, by looking at the interruption of grace in this narrative, and then lastly, looking at the effect of grace. So if grace changes everything, it's important for us to understand our need for it. It's important for us to understand how grace interrupts our lives, just like it interrupted Saul's life. And then lastly, we need to look at the effect of grace in our life. So let's reflect first on our need for grace by looking at Saul's need for grace. I've heard people before say something to the effect of, you know, I just don't think that I'm good enough to be a Christian. Or I just don't think I'm a very good Christian. You know, I think that I'm too far gone. I don't know that God could really save me. And while it sounds deeply humble, it's actually counterintuitively deeply prideful. Because essentially what it's saying is the power of my sin is greater than the power of God. And surely Saul to some degree thought that, right? Paul did not, and by the way, I will interchangeably be using the words Saul and Paul, namely because if I tried to only say Saul, I would fail. So I'm just telling you, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. Saul in this scenario probably did not say something to the effect of, you know, I'm not a very good Christian. He probably said something to the effect of, I kill Christians. That's kind of like another level of neediness, another level of depravity, another level of brokenness. He didn't think he wasn't a very good Christian. He just thought Christians were evil. And as a result of that, he persecuted them fastidiously 
not because he was a pagan, and it's important for us to realize this reality, but because he was hyper-religious. Paul was so far gone into self-righteous religion that he missed the gospel. Paul believed in the gospel or the God of the Old Testament. So much so, he believed that this God would send a Messiah and this Messiah would be one who is blessed. And then for this group to come along and to proclaim that they follow a Messiah who is a person who claims to be God and who's not blessed but specifically was cursed when he was hung on the cross, Paul thought there's no way this way is the right way And as a result of that, he was headlong into something deeply rooted in him, which was religion. Paul was lost in his religion. And as a result of that, Paul was in great need of grace. Are you lost in religion? It's so easy for us, it seems, in life to dance around the truth, to be in the vicinity of the truth, to think that we might understand the gospel, or we might understand Christianity, or we might understand religion, and to really not get it. Some of you would know that I fancy myself as an avid cyclist, and I love to ride. And as a result of riding and having bikes, there's things that uh, being a cyclist entails other than simply riding. And one of those things is fixing, like fixing your bike mechanically. Put it this way, I like riding my bike a lot more than I like fixing my bike. I've recently acquired a new bike that has different kind of brakes than my other bike had, and there needed to be an adjustment. And so I called my brother, who not only is a good bike rider, but is a great mechanic, and asked him, hey, how do I make this adjustment on the caliper and the rotor and the disc? And he tells me what to do, and he tells me about these two bolts. And I'm like, okay, got it. I see those bolts. Good to go. Hang up the phone with him. I've already interrupted him at work. And uh, I go back to, and I start to do this, and immediately when I loosen the bolt, something starts dripping out of the brake caliper, and I'm thinking, hmm, he didn't say anything about something dripping from the brake caliper. And as soon as I did that, I loosened the other of the two bolts, and proverbially, you know, all all, all things break loose at this point. Uh, And I realize I'm in big trouble. And so at that point, my home mechanic job is taken to the bike shop, and as soon as I walk into the bike shop, they lovingly shame me, and they're like, you did what? You loosened what bolt? Why did you loosen those bolts? Didn't you see these other two bolts? These were the bolts that you were supposed to loosen. I wonder if that story is indicative of us and our walk religiously so often. We're in the right area. We think we're doing the right thing. We're on the brakes. There are two bolts. It's just the wrong two bolts. And messing with those wrong two bolts are not just a slight error. They will actually mess up the whole operation. Well, in many ways, this is what the deal with Paul was. Paul was a religious person who didn't understand the gospel. You understand there's a difference between religion and the gospel, right? Religion is a proclamation of good advice, among other things. The gospel, as I say each week, is a proclamation of good news. Saul, in this text, needed 
grace because he was not following Christ. And furthermore, he was persecuting those who followed Christ. The great psychologist Carl Jung said, fanaticism often hides secret doubts. Fanaticism often hides secret doubts. You see, not only was Paul lost in his religion, Paul goes on to say in other aspects of Scripture about his conversion that he was a wild beast. Paul was an animal. It's the literal version of the text. He was a wild beast or a wild boar when it came to the disposition of his heart and his mind, and not only his heart and his mind, but his actions and the way that he went about persecuting the Christian church. Of all people, Paul was a person that was in great need of grace. Another person that testified to his great need of grace, and I had the privilege of hearing this story only secondhand, not third or fourth or fifth hand and not from a publication. A friend of mine in St. Louis years ago, around the time when Mel Gibson was making the movie The Passion of the Christ, and Mel Gibson at this point, who obviously has lived a tumultuous Roman 7 type of life, let's say, Um, just like me and you, by the way, manifested a little bit differently, not in the public eye as much, but we are Mel Gibson in so many ways. But in 2003, around the making of that film, my friend Dennis Hack was in a small group in Nashville in an art house hearing Mel Gibson testify to his faith in Christ. And to hear Mel Gibson speak about, through success and fame, start to become a wild animal. And then he got to the point and he said this, and then I realized through the gospel that I needed Christ's wounds to heal my wounds. Everybody needs that. We are all ferocious in our anti-gospel life. We are all wild beasts. We have beastly lust. We have beastly gossip. We have beastly pride. We have beastly greed. And we are in need of Christ's wounds to heal our wounds. So realizing that grace changes everything, not only do we see the need for grace in Saul's life and the need for grace in all of our lives. And by the way, if you think that you don't need grace, then you need it that much more. But let's also look in this story at the interruption of grace. So Paul, I hope you caught it in the story, in a pretty um, fantastic way, is on the road to Damascus as a wild animal, as being one who is fastidiously religious, honing in more on his craft to persecute and to ultimately execute more Christians. So much so that he's sending out minions to talk to other ruling and reigning officials. Hey, if there's anybody that is proclaiming that they are followers of the way, bring them to me. And so here he is, headlong, on a road to destruction. Side note, we're all headlong on a road to destruction. 
I understand that when we read Acts 9, it's, it's so funny. It's even referred to in a proverbial way in the culture at large. I mean, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience or anything. Yeah, 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 I was doing this. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a Damascus Road experience. I, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a light. I get that the particulars of this story are unique to Paul. But there's objective realities in this story that are not unique to Paul. And one of those is, one of those is we're all on a road to destruction left to ourselves. And we're all in need of an interruption. And that's exactly what Saul gets in this story. He is moving on his merry way on this road thinking, and this is what's so important for us to understand here. He is thinking he's doing the right thing. He is thinking he is honoring God. He is thinking that he's being very religious. And then he's interrupted by grace. He's interrupted by a voice and by a light that stops him and that speaks to him. He's surprised by joy, as C.S. Lewis says. Note the first of multiple references to C.S. Lewis and his conversion from this point forward. God is this great pursuer who interrupts us with his grace. C.S. Lewis speaks about it like this. The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered at what now appears to be a moment of holy free choice. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. If you like, that I was wearing some sort of stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open that door or take off the corslet meant everything would change. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose... Yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent. But I am more inclined to think that at this moment I came nearer to being a perfectly free agent more than anything I had ever done. I love how Lewis speaks about God closing in on him. Lewis also uses the imagery of God being the great angler. Lewis uses the imagery of he and God being in a chess match where at one point God declares upon C.S. Lewis who was an atheist life checkmate. That's an interruption of grace. God, specifically Jesus, as Saul is on the road to Damascus, interrupts this path of destruction with grace and declares, I've caught you. Checkmate. You are now free. You see, the elements of Saul's story that are common to all are 
Any conversion involves a personal encounter with God. Any conversion entails surrender. Any conversion entails a call to repentance and faith. Any conversion requires a summons to service. And by the way, when we think about this idea of encounter, surrender, repentance, faith, a summons to serve. Yes, that happens ultimately when you place your faith in Christ for the first time. But if you're a Christian, this is also meant to happen continually. We don't repent once. Luther said all of life is repentance. All of life is conversion. All of life is a continual surrender. All of life is a continual encounter. Even if ultimately your status has changed, daily we are to be under the reality of conversion. And for those of you who are apart from faith, this really is it in an ultimate sense. It's God seeking to close in on you lovingly, to bring you into an encounter, a surrender, a place of faith and repentance, and then a summons to serve where you can live with purpose for His glory and for the good of others in the world. Paul was interrupted by grace, ultimately and continually. I'm here to tell you that God is here to interrupt your life lovingly with grace. Ultimately and continually. Before we move, lastly, into the effect of grace, something struck me about this passage in my study this week. I've read this passage before, but never really understood or noticed this particular point. And I don't know exactly what was going on. Maybe it was the time that I couldn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. Maybe it was just the Spirit's will and whim this week to reveal this to me. But did you notice in the conversation that Paul, Saul, has with Jesus on the road, he encounters him, he engages him, and then he asks him a question. What question does he ask him? Why are you persecuting my followers? Is that the question? Why are you persecuting Christians? Why are you persecuting those who follow the way? What does the text say? Why are you persecuting me? There might be no more profound aspect of Christian theology and doctrine than the profound reality of what theologians refer to as union with Christ. It's really all about union with Christ. Because that's what happens upon conversion and salvation, is that we are united with Christ. God declares us righteous because we're united with Christ. God makes us what He's declared us to be because we are united with Christ. When God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, but He sees a faultless, sinless, beautiful Savior. Why? Because we're united to Him. But not only are we united to Him, and this is what is so beautiful about this interruption of grace here. He is united to us. Christ hurts when we hurt. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ knows what it's like to be betrayed. Christ knows what it's like to be rejected. 
Christ knows what it's like, get this, to be shamed. Christ had his clothes stripped off of him in public. Christ is the ultimate me too. And he says this to Paul here. In such a beautiful way. Why are you persecuting me? Because our Savior hurts when and where we hurt. Peter Kreeft is a Christian philosopher that teaches at Notre Dame and has a fantastic uh, philosophical book on the question of evil and suffering, which is no easy answer by any means. And he doesn't give a nice, neat, tidy uh, answer to that big question. But at one point, he tells a story about interacting with a woman who was dealing with the death of her child, which is unspeakable. I mean, that's every parent's worst nightmare. And as she's speaking to him, she declares, where was your God when my son died? And he responded, the same place he was when his son died. God the Father is a parent who willingly subjected his real son to real death. Guess what? God knows what it's like to lose a child. Our Savior hurts where we hurt as Jesus himself, specifically in this passage, asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? So grace changes everything as we see our need for it, as we see the interruption of grace. And then lastly, we see the impact or the effect of grace in Saul's life, if you will. There towards the end of the story, really verses 10 through 19, a couple other people come into the story. Because you see, grace is not something that's individual and grace is not something that is quiet. Grace is something that not only changes a person, grace changes the world. We realize in Acts chapter 13 that grace gave Saul a new name. That's what grace does to you too. But it's not so much about a name, it's about an identity. The effect of grace in our life is a new identity. Not our old identity. And Paul doesn't say this, but it's as if in Romans 7, when he's dialoguing with himself as a believer about doing things that he doesn't want to do and not doing what he should be doing. Like our life every day, right? It's as if Paul is saying, I still want to be Saul. But I want to be Paul too. But I act like Saul when I want to be Paul. And when I'm Saul, I want to be Paul. And what God is saying is, I've given you a new name. It's a new identity. You don't have a scarlet letter anymore. Your slate is clean. That's the effect of grace on an individual level. Another effect of grace that we see here in this story is that Paul follows what Jesus tells him by going to this town and to this house. And what does Paul do when he gets to this house in this particular town? He connects with God. 
in a new way. Through prayer. The effect of grace drives us to our knees. He's communing with God in an intimate way here in prayer. And that's the effect. It gives us a new connection with God. But not only a new connection of God does grace give us. It gives us a new connection with other people. Something that's amazing to think about in the story is Ananias, who is already a Christian, who Jesus speaks to as well and gives him this crazy commission. You just have to laugh when he speaks to Ananias and he said, Hey, Ananias, I've got a job for you. Yes, sir, I'm ready. I'm a follower. What do you need me to do? You know Saul? <clears throat> yeah? Um, I want you to go see him. And Ananias is like, You know I'm spending my life seeking to avoid him. Because, you know, he'll kill me. And Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to go see him. And I want you to find him in this house. And what you'll find him doing is praying. And when you get there, I want you to lay hands on him and pray for and with him. So the effect of grace is not only a new relationship with God, but it's a new relationship with other people for both of them. That's what's awesome about this. Paul's relationship with the Christian community Um, safe to say, is radically different upon the interruption of grace. But the Christian communities, and get this, the Christian communities' relationship with Paul is radically different after the interruption of grace. Because you see, grace brings a new connection with God and a new connection with with others. And that's what we need. In this story, no matter where you're coming from, there's a little bit of Saul and a little bit of Ananias in all of us. Some of you ultimately are in a place where Saul is. On a road that may or may not be explicitly religious, but on a road that is not the road of the gospel. And today would be a fantastic day to have an encounter with the living God and to surrender in faith and repentance, and to receive this interruption of grace, which is transformative. Others of you have done that in an ultimate way, ultimate way by God's grace. God has moved in on you. He declared checkmate, and you surrendered, not because you're astute, or not because you're keen, not because you're not that bad, but simply because God loves you and brought you to a place of embrace and surrender. But remember, this is a continual thing. And just like Ananias, we have the opportunity to have experiences with others. Let's think about it in this way. Um, Assuming Ananias was a real person, which he was. Assuming he was a human being, which he was. He was not perfect. Even he was a follower of the way. Is it presumable that Ananias at times struggled to believe the grace and the gospel that he had given him his life to? Of course it is. Here's a simple question. What do you think it did for Ananias' faith personally to watch and to experience and to engage with Saul coming to a place of faith and repentance? Yeah, that was transformative for Saul to say the least. Guess who else it was transformative for? Ananias. 
Without question, Ananias believed the gospel more fully and more robustly after he laid hands upon Saul and prayed with him. Think about that implication in our life with those around us who are in need of grace but don't know Christ. So, in Surprise by Joy, C.S. Lewis, what I read to you was still not an ultimate moment of conversion. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of cat and mouse with Lewis and God. There was this angling. There was this chess match. There was this moving in. And then there was this ultimate moment where I've quoted at the front of your bulletin where C.S. Lewis, very mundanely, and I love this, by the way, very mundanely, very normatively, talks about an experience of getting into the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle, headed to the temple, headed to church, headed to something really religious. No, headed to Whipsnade, a zoo. He said, when we left for the zoo, I did not believe in God. When we arrived, I did. He said it was strange. It was not something where I intellectually assented to finally and fully understanding. And he said, nor was it something that was really even emotional. Instead, Lewis said, it was more like a man lying motionless in bed suddenly realizes... He's awake. Acts 9 is an encouragement and a call to all of us this morning to wake up to God's grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for people like.